John chapter 6, a bit of an introduction. There's some very major themes in this chapter. One has to do with the Passover, and I'll get into that just a little later, because John is going to make an important point that this is a new exodus that Jesus is embarking upon. Not just the exodus when Moses led Israel out of physical slavery through the desert to the Promised Land, but Jesus being the new Moses leading us out of sin and that captivity to the Promised Land of Heaven. With this new exodus, we need a new Passover because Passover was the tenth plague that started the exodus. Remember the first Passover was the instruction from God through Moses to take an unblemished male lamb and sacrifice it, put its blood on the doorposts of the homes of the Israelites. And if they did that, the avenging angel would pass over that home, provided that they also ate the lamb that night. And then after they had left Israel, God gave instructions through Moses that this should be an annual feast so that they would never forget how much God delivered them out of Egypt. And this is still being celebrated today, obviously, in the Jewish faith. Jesus is the new Moses, and he will come to fulfill the Passover and actually transform it into a sacrament, into the new covenant, in fact. We hear that in the language every time we go to Mass, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. So that's one major theme. And the other theme is this is the messianic banquet that is being prepared for. As we learned in a previous session in Isaiah chapter 25, God talks about a holy mountain in which he will have a feast of rich foods and fine wines. And that fine wine, there's an element of sacrifice there. All sins will be wiped away, all tears, and people will say, this is the God we were waiting for. So that Messianic feast is a theme throughout the Old Testament, and it's now being crystallized here in John chapter 6, and obviously when we get to the actual narrative of the Last Supper in the Synoptic Gospel. Now, to prepare for this great new exodus and Passover, that the people would be open to hearing the words of the discourse in John chapter 6, Jesus is going to perform two miracles, the multiplication of the loaves and walking on the sea. Those two miracles are deliberate so the people would trust the words of Christ. With that introduction, let's begin verse 1. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, each of these verses are quite rich. John is deliberately pointing us back to the first exodus. Just as Jesus crosses the sea in John chapter 6, verse 1, Moses crossed the sea in Exodus chapter 14, when those waters were separated. Now, the Jews knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They would get that. So right off the bat, first verse, pointing back to the first exodus. And a multitude followed him because they saw the signs, which he did on those who were diseased. Now, again, in Exodus chapter 12, a multitude followed Moses because of the plagues that they had seen. 
those plagues are signs, miracles. Again, another parallel. Verse 3, Jesus went up into the hills and there sat down with his disciples. He went up the mountain. What did Moses do? He went up Mount Sinai. Again, a parallel to Exodus chapter 19, where Moses went up Mount Sinai with the people, and Jesus is the new Moses. So right off the bat, three verses, we've got three parallels. There are many more parallels, but I won't go through each of them. The main parallel is the next verse, where in verse 4, we hear, now the Passover of the Feast of the Jews was at hand. Just in case you didn't get those first three clues, John says, actually, the Passover is the context. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a multitude was coming to him, Jesus said to Philip, how are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Again, another parallel because Moses said the similar thing. How am I to feed all these people in the desert who are complaining? Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. Verse 6, this he said to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. This testing, again, is a parallel back to what happened in the book of Exodus. Here, I point you to Numbers chapter 11, verse 13. Well, we'll start with verse 10. When Moses heard the people, family after family, crying at the entrance of their tents, so that the Lord became very angry, he was grieved. Why do you treat your servants so badly? Moses asked the Lord. Why are you so displeased with me that you burden me with all this people? Was it I who conceived all this people, or was it I who gave them birth, that you tell me to carry them at my bosom, like a foster father carrying an infant, to the land you have promised under oath to their fathers? Where can I get meat to give to all this people? For they are crying to me. Give us meat for our food. I cannot carry all this people by myself, for they are too heavy for me. If this is the way you treat me, then please do me the favor of killing me at once, <laughs> so that I need no longer face this distress. We see the parallels here in John chapter 6, where Philip, in verse 7, answered, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. In other words, where am I to get food to feed these people? Like Moses complaining. Well, in verse 8, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Here's a very important spiritual principle that we've all heard in homilies. This boy who had just a little bit gave. And then Jesus took that little gift and multiplied it, which is a lesson for us that even though we think we don't have much to give, whether charisms, talent, money, time, give it anyway in faith and God will multiply it. Rather than just say, I don't have, I just, I'm not talented, I'm not educated, I'm this, I'm not that, and I won't do anything. Now the five barley loaves now, uh, in the Passover, he becomes the Lamb of God. Yes. Okay, and um, and eventually, with no bones being broken, there's that parallel back. Uh, yeah, there's so many parallels here. 
When John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which we saw back earlier, that's a reference back to the first Exodus. And this Exodus, the second Exodus, is uh, Exodus from the slavery of sin. That's right. right. The second Exodus is the Exodus from slavery to sin. Jesus is the new Passover lamb. And everything will tie into the sacramental liturgical meals eventually. That's where we're headed. Okay. <laughs> I just... Yeah, that's good. That's exactly where we're headed. That's where John is leading us to, step by step. So in verse 9, where it says there was a, a lad who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Barley loaves would immediately, for Jews who know the Old Testament, refer them back to that great miracle of Elisha, who multiplied 20 loaves of barley for 100 men with some left over. That was considered a great miracle. But what Jesus is going to do far surpasses that, because he's going to take five loaves and two fish and feed thousands with 12 baskets left over. But that's just the beginning because it's going to be pointing us to what he's going to do at the Last Supper in instituting the sacrament where bread and wine will be transformed, transubstantiated into his body and blood, which will feed millions every year until the end of time. Another parallel we see in verse 10, where Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. We think that might be a throwaway term, but it's not. And we've heard this before in homilies and teachings. Where do we hear about grass in the Old Testament, especially green grass? Psalm 23. This is a reference now to Jesus being the new shepherd. And that's what Psalm 23 is all about. Where the good shepherd leads the sheep to lie down in green pastures. Because sheep are frightened and they need to be fed. And Jesus now is the good shepherd who will lead us to, what is the green grass? The Eucharist, now the best of foods. And if you read Psalm 23, it's really Eucharistic because it says that the good shepherd will lead me through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. So there's a meal. Again, messianic banquet. Rich foods, fine wines. Yes, so the cup of blessing, which is referred to by St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, because Paul gets this right away, and he will devote an entire chapter to the Eucharist and call it the cup of blessing, and challenge the people who were not being prepared to receive the Eucharist because they were engaged in all kinds of bickering, and he would say, well, you know, watch out, because if you receive the Eucharist not in a state of preparedness, you may get sick. And there are some that even die. Because you're sinning against the blood of Christ. He says, he makes that direct reference. You're sinning against the body and blood of Christ. That's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay, back to John chapter 6, verse 11. Now, again, I'm not going to go through all these parallels because there's so many, but it's hard to resist. <laughs> Where he said the men sat down in numbers, about 5,000. In the parallel accounts, because this is the only real miracle that is in all four of the Gospels. 
and each of them have a slightly different interpretation or rendering of the facts. And the synoptics say that not only did Jesus have them sit down on this green grass, but that they were divided into groups of 50, 100, and so on, which is, again, another parallel back to the Exodus account. But that's what Moses did. John doesn't really mention it here about the division into the various groups, but the parallel accounts do. Uh, yes. Yeah, good question. Was Jesus teaching? It's not clear in John's version, but if you look at the parallel accounts in the synoptics, he first taught the people all day, and then they were hungry, and the disciples wanted to send them away, and Jesus said, no, no, you feed them. So we have actually, I'm glad you asked the question, we have a hint prefiguring of the Mass, because we have the Liturgy of the Word, Christ teaching us, and then we move into the Liturgy of the Eucharist, where he feeds us. And that's what's happening in this miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and fish. It's not clear in John's Gospel, but certainly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's made very clear. Jesus was teaching them first, and then he made sure they were fed, not just with his word, but with food, physical food. That's a prefiguring of what happens at Mass when we are fed with the Word and with Christ, body and blood. Okay, verse 11 in chapter 6, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, now the word thanks in the Greek is Eucharistia. John is deliberately again provoking his audience to recognize the Eucharist. Now remember, John is writing this around 90 A.D., which means the Eucharist had been in practice for many decades. The church has already been enacting the Eucharist at Mass. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and also the fish as much as they wanted. Again, a reference back to the Exodus account when the manna was rained down from heaven so that the people had all they wanted. Of course, they still complained, give us meat to eat, and then God performed another miracle with the quail so that they had all that they needed, and then they became so satiated with the meat that they actually again complained. Yeah, the Eucharistic prayer, the good question. So again, at Mass, the Eucharistic prayer is our thanksgiving for all God has already done, picks up the themes of the Old Testament. So we go into the Eucharist with that heart of thanksgiving after having first confessed our sins in the penitential rite, so that we are prepared worthily to receive the Eucharist. Yes, and that will be brought up a little later in uh, John chapter 6, when many people did not stay, once they understood really what Jesus was saying. It was a hard teaching, and that's just go through the centuries, and many people have left, Right from day one, but particularly with those big divisions in the church, the Protestant Reformation rejected this pretty much wholeheartedly. Not the original Protestant reformers. Luther had a real understanding of the Eucharist in the sense that it was a sacrament. It was the body and blood of Christ. It was a little skewed in that he taught consubstantiation, which meant that the bread was present together with the real presence of Christ. So a lot of people have left. And Catholics too, as we know today, most Catholics do not come to Mass. They've left. Not necessarily because it's a hard teaching, but because 
They don't know the teaching. Back to the text. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who received So also the fish, as much as they wanted, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over that nothing may be lost. Gathering up the fragments is a reference to what Jesus really wants to do is to gather up his people, Israel, because they're scattered. The ten northern tribes have been scattered. The two southern tribes have been conquered. Jesus wants to first gather his people into a new Israel, which is the church, centered on the Eucharist, which is that unifying sacrament. Is that why there's 12 baskets because of the tribes? That's why there's 12 baskets because of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles who will be the, the bishops of this new church. It's also a reference to the superiority of this miracle in John chapter 6 in comparison with the miracle of the manna in Exodus chapter 16 because Moses was given a direct command to relate to the people, don't gather up the leftovers and try to save them overnight because it'll corrupt. (laughs) And they, of course, tried to gather up as much as they could and it corrupted because that was such an inferior miracle but with the miracle here, which is leading to the Eucharist, yes, God wants us to gather up the fragments. And in the Eucharist, that's what we do every Sunday. We gather up the remaining and put it in the tabernacle and adore it because it's Christ. Now, there's an important verse that we need to really look at. Verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who receded. It's not so much here in John's account, but if you go to the synoptics, and let's take a look at Mark chapter 6, verse 41. The same miracle, slightly different wording. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. Those four action verbs, take, bless, broke, and gave will be repeated verbatim at the Last Supper when Jesus enacts the Eucharist and on the road to Emmaus when after the risen Jesus explains the Old Testament in terms of himself to these two disciples who are walking away from Jerusalem to Emmaus at the end when they get to the house and Jesus is about to go on they ask him to come to the house and have supper, have dinner at the breaking of the bread, they recognize that it's really Jesus. And the same verbs are used in the same order because it's truly a sacrament. Because it was after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now this first verb, he broke, becomes a code word in the early church for the breaking of the bread. At that time, the early church, the Roman Empire, I mean, this was not an easy time to be a Christian and they had to use veiled language. There was already a misunderstanding, and Justin Martyr tries to address it in his letter to the emperor, but this misunderstanding that what's going on is cannibalism. To veil this whole teaching to the persecuting Romans, they use the term breaking of the bread, and that's in the Acts of the Apostles. Before, like even before Christ, like, um, like because they believed in God? Like, were, they- were the Romans persecuting the Jews? 
Yeah. No. Because they accepted the Jewish faith as a valid religion. Okay, so it was after when Nero Well, with respect to the Jews, it was because they were so cantankerous among themselves, divisions, infighting, and always wanting to get un out under the boot of the Roman domination, so there were always sort of this resistance. That's when they started wiping out the Jewish religion by destroying the temple. But with Christianity, the Jews had considered Christianity to be a dangerous sect, and there were the Romans as well. So let's just turn to Mark chapter 14, verse 22, because we'll go to the Last Supper, just so you get this very clearly. Cannibalism? And they wouldn't worship the emperor. Was that Nero? Nero was the prime example. Okay, so Mark chapter 14, verse 22. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take, this is my body. So the same verbs, in the same order. And that's repeated in the other synoptics account of the institution of the Last Supper. John chapter 6. Verse 12, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. 12 is also the number of perfection or completion. And that has again a Eucharistic overtone because the Eucharist that we now receive is total, complete, nothing lacking. Okay, so back to John chapter 6, verse 14. When the people saw the sign which he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They knew Moses was the one who prompted the miracle of the manna, which fed not just 5,000, but a lot more. And not just one day, but for 40 years. There was also, in the tradition of the Jews, an understanding that at the time of the Messiah, there would be a return of the manna. It's not in the scriptures, but it's in the Mishnah. So there was this expectation that the Messiah would reinstate the manna. That's why they say, this is indeed the prophet, the prophet, the one Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, that God would send another like him who would be the Messiah. Now, things get a little sour here in verse 15. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the hills by himself. Again, they're seeing the signs, but they're not interpreting them in a spiritual way. They're not being elevated in to see what really is happening, what they want. Like the woman at the well, initially, she just wants water. They just want bread. Because it's hard to feed yourself in that time. You can't go down to McDonald's and order what you want. They want to make him king because of that. They wanted a king who would come and boot out Rome and reestablish Israel as preeminent in the world, the chosen people. And they didn't understand it. So they're still not understanding. This also smacks of the initial temptations that Jesus faced in the desert when he began his ministry, what did the devil want to do? One of the temptations was, brings him up the high hill and says, look out at, over the whole world, I will make it yours. You can be king. That was one of the temptations. That's what's really happening here.
but Jesus withdraws to the hills by himself. Now the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke specify he went to pray. Now we get to another miracle, again to prepare the people for the discourse. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. This is verse 16 and on. The sea rose because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. They were frightened, but he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Again, lots of Old Testament prefigurings in this great miracle. Let's turn to Psalm 107, starting at verse 23. And notice the parallels that I'm going to read out here to what was just said. Some went off to sea in ships. Parallel to verse 16 in chapter 6. They went down to the sea. Some went off to sea in ships, plied their trade on the deep waters. They saw the works of the Lord, the wonders of God in the deep. He spoke and roused a storm wind and tossed the waves on high. They rose up to the heavens, sank to the depths. Their hearts trembled at the danger. They reeled, staggered like drunkards. Their skill was of no avail. In their distress, they cried to the Lord, who brought them out of their peril, hushed the storm to a murmur. The waves of the sea were stilled. They rejoiced that the sea grew calm, and God brought them to the harbor they longed for. A lot of parallels there. There's an even greater parallel in Job chapter 9, verse 8. Only Yahweh walks on the sea. That's the verse. Only Yahweh walks on the sea. And what does Jesus do? There's a storm. He walks on the sea. He calms the storm, gets into their boat. As soon as he does, they're at the other side to where they were headed. And he says, do not fear. In the process, when they're fearful, he says to them, it is I, which is the ego, a me, divine name spoken by God out of the burning bush, to Moses, I am who I am. Fear not. He's the, revealing who he is. He's revealing who he is. Because he wants them to get the discourse. He wants them not to leave when he talks about receiving his body and his blood. He wants them to understand he is the Messiah. And they're starting to open up, but they, but they have a long ways to go. Like, who is this that even... Yeah, they don't yet know he's the Messiah or they don't believe it. They really will only believe it after his death and resurrection, when Pentecost comes and then. That's when the light bulb goes on. The light bulb goes on, amongst other things. Okay, we're back to John chapter 6, and now we're at verse 22. On the next day, the people who remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. However, boats from Tiberias came near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given Eucharistia thanks. So when the people saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. 
When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. As we just said, the people are still on a physical level. They're not understanding. It's actually similar to John chapter 4, verse 31. The woman at the well, when the disciples come back and they say, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him food? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So obviously the apostles were not getting it. And that was in chapter 4. The people are not getting it in chapter 6. But Jesus is saying to them, do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him has God the Father set his seal. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him and remained. We went through that. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Again, not a good understanding because they are thinking they've got to take the initiative and do something. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. In other words, the Father is the one doing the work. What we're called to do is yield by faith. And in fact, that will be said just a little later on in chapter 6, verse 44, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Father is the one at work. Paul says that too in Philippians chapter 2. It is God who works in you that you will do his will. God works in you. God's the one working. What we're called to do is yield. Basically, they haven't understood that uh, eternal life only comes from the grace of God, except just accepting his work. They're still in the Old Testament. They're still under the law. And the law, as the Pharisees have very well done, have put it on the people. You've got to keep the law. You have to keep the law, plus all the regulations we have heaped on the law in order to be saved. Now, What's interesting here is Jesus is beginning with the work of God, and he says that you believe in him who sent him. Verse 39, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? An interesting question, given that he's just walked on water and multiplied loaves and fish. But let's put ourselves into their shoes for a minute. Because what they're really saying is that, okay, you multiply loaves and fish to feed 5,000. And you did it from five loaves. Moses fed hundreds of thousands, not from five loaves, but from nothing. And he fed them not one day, but 40 years. So in comparison to Moses, it's not much of what you did. That's what they're thinking. And it's true, Moses certainly appealed to God and God worked through Moses, but they don't think Jesus is God at this point. And they say in verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. 
he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're referring to the manna. They're under the Old Testament understanding. Well, that was a tradition of the Jews. It's not in the scriptures, but it grew to such an extent that Jews at the time of Jesus were expecting that Moses would actually reinstate the manna. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives, present tense, gives you the true bread from heaven. So here's Jesus beginning to deepen their understanding. Truly, truly means pay attention. This is important. Yes, Moses gave you bread from heaven, past tense, but the manna stopped once they entered the promised land. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, the manna fed the people, but they still died. The true bread that Jesus is introducing is this bread that will give them eternal life. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always, like the Samaritan woman. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am, again, divine title, the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Now what John is doing here is he's going to, in this first part of the discourse where he begins in verse 35, I am the bread of life, will introduce this bread which is actually God's revelation, his teaching, this wisdom. Because if you remember in the Old Testament, there were many references, for example, Jeremiah was told to take the scroll and eat it so that it would be part of him and then he could carry out his ministry. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Here, again, in the first part of the discourse, it's centered on this revelation from God and belief. Belief is critical. And that's why John introduces it first before he gets into the Eucharist because without faith, the Eucharist is not going to be efficacious. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and him who comes to me, I will not cast out. The word casting out should reflect this back to the fall in the garden where Adam and Eve did not eat from the tree of life but ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and were cast out. They disobeyed God. They didn't accept God's revelation because God told them very clearly, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil at the center of the garden. And of course they ate and cast out. This living bread that Jesus is referring to, he's basically saying, I'm the tree of life. If you eat of me, you will live forever. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. They see him but they don't really get the spiritual understanding. But once you believe, then you begin to see faith, seeking understanding, as Augustine would say. So they're seeing on this material level and they're stopping there. Once they have faith, once they yield, God will open their eyes and they will come to this deeper understanding. Absolutely right. It's hard for us too because of the temptations of this 
secular culture that steeps us in the material. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. That's why they walked away. Yeah, no, it's very difficult. And so we need to be not just knowing this in our heads or even believing it, but to then live it in such a way that people will say, okay, you've got something that I need. Peace, for example. Even though you're struggling, and I know you're struggling, and you, you've got bills to pay and family problems and everything else, but there's still this underlying peace, which comes from the sacraments and from faith and prayer. But for us to be that compassionate, as Pope Francis keeps on saying, go out to the peripheries where there is this struggle, because everyone is struggling, and be that compassionate shepherd that smells like sheep. And that's for all of us, not just the clergy. It's true, the answers are here in the Bible, but again, the Bible for a lot of people is a big mystery. And if you don't have the spirit, or if you're not, if you haven't been brought up in the churches, this Bible is very much difficult to enter into. So again, well, they were brought up in Judaism, so they had that faith in God. They believed God existed, and this is prior to science. So a lot of these signs that they perceived, they perceived correctly that it was God as the prime mover. We forget that because we've got all these secondary causes, electricity and everything else, and we think, well, we're sufficient. But God's still the primary cause of the whole universe. But we don't get that because we're enmeshed in the secondary causes and we think that we're sort of ahead of the game and in charge. They didn't have all that. They were brought up in Judaism. They knew their prayers. And it was a hard life too. So that's how they grew in faith. Yes. Yes. Jesus is taking them by the hand and slowly walking them into this great ocean of his divine mercy, which is the Father sending the Son to take on our own fallen nature and to live it out in such a way that he's inviting us to partake in his life. He really recapitulates the whole Old Testament in himself, Jesus does. But it, you're right, the, the Bible is difficult to interpret, and God knew that, which is why when he sent his apostles out, he didn't say, write a book. He said, preach and walk with the people. So it's both scripture and sacred tradition because the sacred tradition, the life of the church, the church helps you interpret the scriptures in the way that's true because sacred tradition is God's word. Where the Protestants go wrong is that their sola scriptura is so isolated that it's each person is their own pope. And that's why you have all these denominations, because when there's a disagreement, a fundamental disagreement, there's nothing to, there's no higher authority to go to. There's no pope, there's no magisterium, and they tend to break away. And then they are steeped in their little tradition of how they interpret the scriptures, and they're isolated from their other denominations. And it's just a fracturing, which is, there's only one who really wanted division. Again, as Catholics, we are very, very fortunate and gifted. But to really know the scriptures, know the catechism, being able to give an answer for the hope that's within you, and live it out, that's what God's calling us to do. Okay, verse 35. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is the sent one. It's a title. 
He was obedient to his father. He was sent by the father in divine mercy. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Divine mercy. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So notice again, faith is being emphasized at the beginning of this discourse. Belief in the revelation that God has in Christ. He's just taught all day, and he's saying, yield to the teaching, believe. That's the whole tenor of the first half of this discourse, is belief. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. It all applies to us. This whole discourse is applying to us, teaching us. Because we're like the crowd. Okay, what's the Jews' response? To this great revelation? The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How ironic. They do not know Jesus' mother and father. They don't know that Jesus actually has his father as God. Joseph is the foster father, but Jesus was born of a virgin. They're not there yet, but they think they are. They know Jesus, he's just a carpenter from their hometown. Who does he think he is? Saying, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. Now that murmuring is what the Israelites did in the desert. Again, another reference to the first Exodus. And what did God do? He, he was patient and patient and patient. Finally, he did something pretty drastic. He sent snakes. But that was an act of mercy because then they were humbled. And they came to Moses and said, Moses, do something. These snakes are biting us. We're dying. Moses goes to God. What does God tell Moses to do? Craft a bronze serpent on a pole and lift it up so that whoever gazes on that will be saved. The prefiguring of the cross. Verse 42. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sees me draws him, the work of the Father, and I will raise him up on the last day. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, For God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work. God takes the initiative. We're not saved by works. Initially, we're saved by grace. Through faith, expressed in love. Works has a place there, but it's not the initiator. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Here is a quote from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. Jesus is referring back to the Old Testament again. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now here he's beginning a new section of his discourse. We had the first section in verse 35 where he introduces it, I am the bread of life, and he 
talks about faith yielding to the revelation of God through Christ. Now he's going to talk about the Eucharist, the sacrament. Verse 48 begins a new understanding. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now here, just go back to chapter 5, and that was the teaching of Jesus, where he says in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. That's now what Jesus is explaining in chapter 6. Again in verse 51 where Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give... He's now talking about the future. For the life of the world is my flesh. He's pointing forward to the Last Supper. He points back to the Exodus, the first Passover, so that we get an understanding of the roots of the Eucharist. And then he points forward to the Last Supper where he will actually institute the sacrament. He's getting more and more direct explicit. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Good question. Because they are interpreting this as cannibalism. And it's anathema in the Old Testament, obviously, for Jews to drink the blood of an animal, because the life of the soul is in the blood. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So he ups the ante. Just in case they were thinking, this is symbolic. This is like he's talking metaphorically. Jesus saying, no, no. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's an abomination for the Jews in their understanding of the Old Testament. So, Father, if people really understood this passage, they wouldn't be so reluctant to come to church because they would realize that this is the food that they need if they want to get to heaven. So. Yes. So it's up to us to understand this and be able to explain it and live it. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, present tense. It begins now, begins when we believe and when we partake of the sacrament. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed. Just in case you thought it was a metaphor, Jesus says, is my flesh indeed. And my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now he's introducing, or at least building up to this crescendo of abiding, this mutual abiding, which is covenant language. This is spousal language, nuptial language, which again has its roots in the Old Testament where God says, I am the bridegroom, you are the bride. Now Jesus is saying, 
let's consummate the marriage. This mutual abiding is again a dominant theme in the New Testament. If you recall John chapter 15 where we have that teaching of Jesus about the branches abiding in the vine. Unless you abide in me, Jesus says, you have no life. Not only are you not going to be fruitful, but those dead branches will be cut off. Hard language, but he spends most of that chapter 15 talking about this mutual abiding. And how if we abide as branches in the vine, and what's the sap coming from the vine into the branches? It's the grace of the sacraments, giving life, fruitfulness to us. That's why we come to Mass every Sunday. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, this is 57, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Seven times Jesus repeats this statement about eating his body. Seven times. He just deepens the emphasis. Truly, truly, indeed, indeed. He just repeats it over and over in this second half of the discourse. Lest there be any misunderstanding. Jesus is not speaking metaphorically. He's speaking sacramentally. Now, why isn't it just cannibalism? If a Protestant came to you and said, well, here, Eucharist, if it truly is the body and blood of Christ, real presence, it's cannibalism. How do you respond to that? Yeah, okay, I've heard good answers here from all corners. Can you repeat that? What you just said? The flesh that we're eating and the blood that we're drinking is from the glorified body of Christ that once he died on the cross. Right. That's the answer. What we eat on Sunday is the risen and glorified body of Christ who can be at different places at different times, who can be everywhere in his glorified body. He is on every altar of every church every time there's mass and the words of consecration are said. It's not that we're feasting on dead flesh. We're feasting on the living body, blood of the living Christ, the tree of life, the messianic banquet. And Jesus says, he who eats my body and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. But now you've got to combine that with faith. You just can't come to Mass and take the Eucharist and go home and think that, you know, this is great and live a life of debauchery. It's both and. Faith and sacraments. Faith and works. It's both and. James says that, doesn't James it? says it clearly. Yeah. yeah. The Last Supper is not set out in John's Gospel. It is in the synoptics. When you get to the Last Supper narrative, it is just so clear. Another reason why these Protestant reformers rejected the Eucharist is because they knew the Eucharist required a priesthood. Yes. And they rejected the priesthood. Because most of them were priests. And they rejected it because, again, what was the Catholic Church doing at the time of the Reformation? They were selling indulgences. Not all of them, but some of them were. It's a great scandal. Now, they had good purposes. They were trying to build great cathedrals, trying to build up the civilization, and they needed money for that, but you can't sell indulgences. A good question uh, Ray is asking, 
do we as Catholics demand too little of our flock? Father, why don't you comment on that? <laughs> well, you know the churches in the 60s, in the Vatican II, really wanted us to live it spiritually and not just by, by legality. And so they, they want us to fast so we can hunger. And there still is a, a legitimate one-hour fast before communion, but more it's the spiritual longing and hunger. The fasting from meat, well, all point was to identify with the poor. Fish was the poor man's food. It's no longer poor man's food. Macaroni and cheese would be the appropriate food. Eat simply like the poor. So it's so the church is really challenging us to grow up, to, to go beyond the legalism of the law, to try to really live it with our hearts. But left to ourselves, what do we do? We excuse ourselves in this and this, and we become lazy. Well, we take communion to wake up. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing, Vatican II challenged the laity to step up, each of us, in our baptism, who are called to grow in holiness, and then spread the faith. And that was a big theme in Vatican II, and all of the main encyclicals on evangelization, the popes have said the same thing. We're demanding too little of our laity. Because for whatever reason, prior to Vatican II, everything had to be done by the clergy. But Father, we were brought up to believe that missing Mass on Sunday was a mortal sin. Well, it is. <laughs> it still is. I mean, there are exceptions, but if you know that the Sunday Mass is what it is, that's a big challenge. And you have no real reason not to miss, you just want to sleep in. What else can that be but a grave sin? Because knowing what Jesus has done, this is a representation of the cross. This is our participation in the Paschal mystery. And if we can't get ourselves out of bed and go. And yeah. that means if you do not go to confession and get rid of that mortal sin, then you shouldn't be receiving the Eucharist, right? Yes. And that's right in the Catechism. So this is not new. That's what we do. We continue learning and deepening our faith and falling in love with Christ. And it will show, because you cannot not say what is deeply held in your heart. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. That will be evident to people. When we really fall in love with Christ, we will live it out and be compelling. That's what we do. We continue growing in our faith and learning. All right, so obviously we didn't finish. It's quarter to 12, so we will meet next Monday.